You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit with Dr. Michael Rogers, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. If some of you have really good memories and, and keep track of these things, you may notice that both the title and some of the structure of our Lenten series this year is uh, the same title and a very similar structure to a, a series we had in 2001. Uh, at that time, I was taken with a new book that was the last book that uh, Dr. Jim Boyce and his then associate Phil Riken had written together and uh, called The Heart of the Cross. And we had Phil Riken here. That was the first time he had spoken at our church to participate in that series. But we've changed some of the topics, and all of the speakers, I think, are different than the other times. So even though we're covering what may be familiar territory, I think the Lord will suit a blessing for you in a different way this time around. We're looking at the cross, obviously, from a number of different angles of the things it accomplished, of what it is, and how we ought to consider it. I'm just reading a small part of the text a small excerpt, actually, from Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, beginning at verse 22 through verse 24. So this is catching Peter in mid-sermon. He's already passed his introduction, and he's hard on the point where you start to pound the pulpit, I think you might say. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. Let's pray for a moment. Father, use our thoughts and this, your word, to train our attention and our heart's devotion to that centerpiece of all our faith, the cross of Jesus. May he receive all praise. Amen. If someday archaeologists 500 years from now decide to dig up ancient civilizations and they have little knowledge of Christianity going in, they will certainly have a sure way of identifying, in most cases, except people like us, when they find a place of Christian worship. Because they will find crosses, won't they? They'll find crosses that once stood atop steeples. They'll find crosses laid in mosaic tiles, in floors. They will find even buildings where the place of worship is shaped in the form of a cross. The ancient cruciform sanctuary was one of the earliest plans for which, in which people worshipped the Lord. And so by finding that sign, and they'll wonder what we are, some kind of a town hall with no cross, but by finding most places of Christian worship, they'll know they've found a place of Christian worship when they find the symbol of the cross. 
Because, of course, the cross is both the chief symbol as well as the defining reality and doctrinal center of all of Christian faith. Now, it's interesting that in more recent times, the cross has received a kind of de-emphasis in some places. A bold example, I'm sure an extreme example, and yet maybe not entirely so, an example of turning away from emphasis on the cross and rejection of Christ's substitutionary atonement occurred at a large American conference in a mainline denomination about 15 years ago. And the speaker at this conference stood up to say something very memorable. It's been repeated many times since. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses with blood dripping down and all that weird stuff anymore. And this individual went on to outline what we did need in place of the cross and the blood dripping down. We know that crucifixion was a cruelty adopted from pagan tribes in Europe, taken over by the Greeks and Romans. The people they took it from were basically barbarians. The Greeks were cultivated people, and the Romans also. And yet they found in this very uncultivated practice a cruel method of execution. Many have said one of the cruelest ever devised to kill a person because the cross was designed to prolong death until a maximum of physical torture had been inflicted on the individual. And so horrible and agonizing was everything attached to a cross and crucifixion that polite Roman citizens never wanted to speak about it. Roman citizens were actually exempt from being crucified. No matter what crime they committed, they knew they would die by a more merciful way if they were a Roman citizen. And for an Old Testament Jew, it was an abomination. The person who suffered the fate of crucifixion was looked upon by one and all as a complete outcast, unworthy of any kind of notice. Before he even died, He was little more than a piece of human garbage. And yet this, a cursed mode of death, was what God chose to subject His only begotten Son as He came into this world to do a particular task. And if we could not talk about the bad news, the tragedy, the ostracism, the curse, the torture, and everything else, that surrounds the idea of a cross, we would have no gospel. Without that bad news, we wouldn't have any good news to tell the world, and we certainly wouldn't have reason to have a missions conference because we wouldn't have anything to tell the world. Christianity is the faith of those who trust in what Paul said was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I once repeated that phrase in a service, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and a lady came up to me afterward and said, you left out the resurrection. I said, well, I was quoting a passage of Scripture where Paul's emphasis was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. His deliberate emphasis, he of course wasn't denying the resurrection, but his emphasis was Jesus Christ who died in this horrible way. Jesus Christ who became a scandal. That's what we want to look at for a few Wednesday nights 
the aspects of what was involved as he became such a scandal for us. Tonight we start by asking the very basic question that people have written whole books about, so obviously I'll do no more than scratch the surface. Why was a cross necessary in the first place? Well, I fix upon the New Testament text of Acts 2.23 that declares that the cross was first and foremost, a fixed determination of God's own plan for history. Now, the setting of this, of course, is Peter standing up to preach on the epic day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit had burst upon the disciples gathered there in Jerusalem praying to see what God was going to do next, and some very surprising things happened, and crowds started mocking and saying, these guys are drunk already in the morning, and Peter had to start out. His introduction was to say, no, we're not drunk. This is something God prophesied. His Holy Spirit is breaking out in a way the prophets said he would. But then Peter moved off that introduction and went straight to the heart of his subject matter because the heart of his sermon was the heart of the cross. And he pointed to the crucifixion of Jesus and told his listeners they were responsible. They were culpable in the death of Jesus who had been in their midst not too long before this. And yet, the key phrase for us to consider is, he was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Now, one thing we know for sure is that this wasn't the way Peter always looked at the cross. Something had happened to him. Because there was a point, you may remember, earlier in the public ministry when Jesus said, I'm going up to Jerusalem, there I'm going to be scorned and rejected and killed and the cross and so on. And and what did Peter say about that? Good idea, Lord, I think that's exactly what God... No. He said, no! Not you, Lord! That's not for you. And it must have been the hardest moment of Peter's life when the master who he loved had to turn to him and say something absolutely awful. Get behind me, Satan. You're not my friend if you're telling me this. You're the mouthpiece of Satan. And not only did Peter... I need a little less volume on this thing. Not only did Peter not always think that way about the cross, but even Jesus had his moments when he wondered, was the cross really the only way? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Even though Jesus had been headed towards that cross, he came to the moment when he had to pray in the agony of indecision and say, Father, is there some other way? Can I avoid this? Is there another alternative? But, of course, Jesus did accept the alternative. He did understand. Even as he prayed, he knew he was just grappling in his humanity to come to grips with it. And we know he accepted it because after he had risen again, we have that indication of his dialogue in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus with those disciples when they were telling him what had happened and how amazing it was that Jesus was crucified and then he was resurrected. And he said to them, did not the Christ have to suffer these things? Wasn't there a necessity 
by God being worked out in these things? And he opened the Scriptures and showed them the necessity of it. He showed them from the prophets that these things had to happen. And so we know Jesus taught his disciples, the apostles, these things in those 40 days that he was with them before he ascended into heaven, which has happened at the beginning of Acts here in the previous chapter 1 of Acts. That's how we understand Peter's quantum leap in understanding when he gets up to preach this sermon. From the guy who said, not you, Lord, you'll never suffer that. You, You must be mistaken. He's now the one who can say, not only did this happen, and it wasn't an accident, it happened according to the set purpose and foreknowledge of God. That certainly reflects the teaching of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit that has changed the heart of Peter because he now can teach us something far deeper than he understood before. He can teach us that what was going on in the cross was the active purposing of God, not God simply permitting the cross, not God simply knowing in advance that it would happen and saying, well, okay, I guess we can't get around that. God planning it. It was no accident. The eternal God not only knew the cross would happen, He decreed it must happen. The God who saved Noah from the flood, as we've been looking at on Sunday mornings, the God who led Moses to bring the Israelites out of captivity, the God of the entire Old Testament, the God of the prophets, was the God who planned the cross. Ephesians chapter 1 says God is, in so many words, a law unto himself. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't read the evening papers or take a poll or gather his wise cabinet to tell him what to do. He doesn't listen to the voice of the people voting for him. He does things according to the counsel of his own will. In Isaiah 53, I read one part of it, but I didn't go as far as verse 10. That takes us deeper still into what that counsel of God's own will is actually all about where Isaiah wrote the incredible words, it was, and remember, he was writing it in prophecy, but history saw it come true. It was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush his son. And yet, the will of the Lord would prosper in his hands. God knew that devious and murderous men and traitors like Judas would have roles in the drama. Weaklings like Herod, indecisive people like Pilate would be there. Soldiers would be there whipping him and pressing the thorns down and tearing his back open with their whip and all those things. But behind that visible tribunal of men with the blood and the sorrow that they were able to bring to bear, there was something infinitely more formidable, determining all this. The hand of an almighty Father orchestrating everything that happened at the cross. And so when we ask the basic question, why was the cross necessary? It isn't a hard question to answer at all if we will listen to the Bible. It has an answer, and yet it's an answer people don't want to hear 
It's a very profound answer. The why of the cross is God ordained it to be so. We don't really need to go beyond that. Our curiosity shouldn't press beyond that. We can't know anything beyond that. Because of a decree of God the Father formed even before time, Revelation 13 speaks the truth about Christ, that he was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the earth. That's the answer. The necessity of the cross, it's in the will of God. Now, I could stop there and pronounce a benediction because that's the answer. But in the second place tonight, I want to bring you another answer that that is definitely secondary to the first. The cross is necessary to atone for human sin. Now, I place the second because Peter put something else first, and yet quite often this is what we put first. We say, well, why the cross? Well, because we're sinners and we needed a Savior, and and so God saw our problem and, and he figured out a solution and and gave us a Savior, right? If we would trace biblical doctrines and give a condensed summary of vast things that that are huge pieces of the Bible, I'll just give it to you in a few real tiny points. One, there are some offending parties. All of us have created an offense. Secondly, there is an offended party, God, the all-holy and righteous God. Third, there are specific offenses, and those are any want of conformity to the will of God as he revealed it, or rebellion against the will of God. And so, because there are offending parties and an offended party and offenses, there's a penalty, and it's a terrible penalty. It's the full force of God's inconceivable wrath for our offenses. A terrific problem. Stated simply in biblical words, the soul that sins shall surely die. Now that is the whole story of the Bible in a few words. We don't have a lot of time tonight. But what I'm trying to show you is the argument that says the cross was necessary to solve our human sin problem. For somebody had to solve it. We figure we've got a problem. Somebody's certainly going to solve it for us. And as practical-minded Americans, you see, we always want to put this first. We have a problem. God must like us enough to want to solve our problem. We're sinners under the curse of God's law and without hope according to our own resources. And Ephesians 2 says we are dead, not just weak. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We've got a problem. Now, surely God, having made us, is nice enough that he wants to solve it. And this is the way most people reason it out, you see. We've got a problem. The problem's with God. But God likes us, so he's going to solve our problem. And, you know, some people even go further down this road towards beyond the pale of orthodoxy when they start saying, well, why is forgiveness of human sin such a big deal anyway? One French philosopher said one time, Of course, the good God will forgive. That is his business. In other words, he meant, hey, he's God, isn't he? What's a God for if not to forgive people? 
So some people say, why do you make such a big deal of this? Why this offering of sacrifices and atoning for things and bleeding and all of this? What kind of a monster God is it anyway? Your sin is so inconsequential to him, he could flick it off his sleeve like a piece of lint. Why do you make a big deal out of it? Well, I see, anything that begins this way and makes our predicament the first cause of the cross, even though that's where a lot of evangelists go, folks, that's where a lot of preaching goes that you've heard much of your life. The Bible does not say the first cause of the cross is our predicament. It says what Peter preached. The first cause is the plan of God. Formed according to his own counsel, by his own grace, without consulting us, without, as far as we can tell, necessarily dancing to our tune or running like an ambulance to our aid. Nothing puts God under any kind of compulsion or obligation to act for our benefit. Man-centered logic fails to appreciate. You see, the horror that sin is to God. Any one sin. You hear this, people reasoning this way. They go, oh, come on. You're not going to tell me that if I tell one lie or if I lust after a woman or I I just one time explode in anger or something or I harm another person cruelly, that that's a sin that God is going to condemn me for? Yes, it is. Why? You see, you're all concentrated on, well, that sin isn't so bad. But God is concentrating on the fact that as an infinite and holy and righteous being, the slightest sin, that piece of lint as you call it, is an infinite sin because it's against an infinite being. And he cannot look away from it. But he is not responding to the give you Jesus on the cross by the necessity of the problem you have. His response of the necessity of the cross is by the counsel of his own will and his own grace. Dorothy Sayers was a wise Christian writer. She wrote mysteries and various other things. Somebody sent her a letter once in which they said, I'm going to ask you, Ms. Sayers, two questions. I'd like your answers. This person was a bit of a skeptic, and the first question was, why does everything we do have to go so wrong? And the other question was, what is the meaning of all the suffering that human beings experience? Nice, easy questions, right? Dorothy Sayers wrote back to the person and said, I will answer your questions in a total of three words. The first question, why does everything we do have to go so wrong? I will answer in one word. Sin. The second question, what is the meaning of all the suffering that human beings experience? The answer is this. Christ crucified. End of answers. You see, at the cross, God made his son into the perfect sacrifice that made what we call an atonement, a reconciliation, a way for father and created child to be reunited and forgiven. The demand of his wrath was satisfied, but in doing it, he also made the best sense that can be made out of human suffering. Everybody who suffers and says, why? Why, why, why? 
Christian, all you can do for yourself or for another who asks that is look at the cross. The answer to all suffering is Christ crucified. It's God coming into our suffering, participating in it, not standing afar, not dancing us like puppets on the end of a string that he can cruelly use any way he wants, becoming one of us in Jesus and suffering as you never will. In the brief time I have tonight, I've told you that the cross was necessary to fulfill God's hidden plan. That's first and foremost. That's what Peter's sermon insisted on, according to the set purpose and foreknowledge of God. Secondly, it was necessary to atone for that great mass of human sin. But we can't leave it there. Because we must be sure that we don't just talk about a great mass of human sin. Thirdly, we have to talk about the cross being necessary to save you. You. I have an interesting experience. One of the great privileges of my ministry is listening to everyone who joins the church come and tell me in their own words about their Christian experience. Who is Christ to you? And, you know, some folks come in and they pour out a story and they're quite eloquent. Other folks are very hesitant, and so I use gentle questions to draw them out a little bit. Quite often, a question I will ask is, well, why did Jesus have to die? What does that mean to you? And sometimes people will give a very eloquent-sounding answer. Oh, well, he had to die for the sins of the world to forgive people. And they're pretty satisfied with that answer, but I'm not satisfied. Because I don't just want to hear that Jesus had to die for the sins of the world to save all those people. I'm waiting to hear He died for me. He died for me. And I know that. Because what I'm listening for is, has there been a deep encounter with the cross in that life where the person has recognized, like Isaiah did, the time that we read about in Isaiah 6 when he encountered the terrifying vision of God in all of his splendor. It was a vision, but it was a vision that knocked the man out. And he saw the holiness of God and the angels attending him. And Isaiah went down on his face and said, Woe is me, I'm undone. My eyes have seen the king in his glory. I want to know, has the cross ever been anything like that to you? Don't just tell me it was for the sins of the whole world. What is it for you? Has it put a mark on you? Did it reduce you at some time in your life, whether you were a 7 or 8 or 15-year-old child or a 45-year-old? My dad was 39 years old when he met Christ in a lasting way, having grown up in a religious home. A religious home. The religion didn't save him. Christ did when he was 39. You see... There's so many texts of Scripture we could cite about the cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear each of those You young people, you know what a pronoun is, I trust. All the pronouns are plural. 
Why is that? Because the verses are emphasizing the breadth of what Jesus did, that it encompasses thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who will come by faith. But you see, at some time or other, to be one of those hundreds of thousands and millions of people who come under those plural pronouns, you've got to make the pronoun singular and say, Christ died for me. He bore my sins in His body on the tree. He became a curse for me. And until you know that, folks, young people, older folks, until you know that, until that singular pronoun has come into the equation, the death of Christ is for other people, but evidently not for you. You see, that's what gripped these people. If we went on with the story that I haven't read of the conclusion of this sermon on the day of Pentecost, you may recall how people reacted. 3,000 people responded to Christ that day. What, what happened to all of them? They heard this truth that the Christ of God was among them, the promised Messiah, and they put Him on a cross, and they were culpable for it. And they got up at the end of the sermon and practically screamed at Peter and said, what should we do about this? This is terrible. And Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and receive the forgiveness of sin. You know, I recognize, I speak maybe to those who are middle-aged or older tonight. Maybe you've been a Christian for a lot of years. I have. I'm facing a big birthday this year. I'm not even thinking about the number that it begins with. But you can figure it out because I'm more than 50 years old in Christ. (laughs) 50 years ago, 50-plus years ago as an 8-year-old, I opened my heart one day in my backyard after a vacation Bible school lesson and said, God, I don't know what I said. I'm, I'm no theologian, but I got something for the first time today. I got the fact that I needed a personal pronoun in my relationship to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, I want this Jesus to be my Savior. And something marked me that day. It wasn't a rush of, you know, I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't jump up and down. I I didn't go all hot and cold. But I remember that day. I remember where I was because that was the day that the cross got a personal pronoun attached to it. And on that day, God laid upon me his newly adopted child by grace through faith in Jesus Christ crucified a new necessity, a necessity of praise to Him, of obedience to this Lord, and the joyful obligation of telling people what I'm telling you right now the rest of my life. And I just can't understand how God's adopted child by faith, I don't care how old you are, how long it's been, how many years have passed, I don't understand how the zeal and the wonderment And the adoration for Christ, crucified for you, can never be extinguished, can never grow cold, can never pass away. A British theologian named P.T. Forsyth 
wrote one time, Christ is to us entirely what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did on Golgotha, so you will not understand Christ until you understand his cross. May you understand it. May the blessing of a divine necessity by the Holy Spirit of God take hold of your life and mark you. Mark you with joy and gratitude the rest of the days that you live. For by the cross, we come to know God. We come to say, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, tonight, as we go from this place, no matter how long the gospel has been known by us, may the necessity of its burden, that sweet burden of joy in Christ, be real in our lives. May we praise and glorify him who died, who is risen and on high for us. In Jesus' name, amen.